This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Here is the wonderful, talented Bill Conti. Thank you. You know, my wife had an aunt who lived to 104. And she was a southern lady, of course, and that meant she drank bourbon and she smoked. But she said, I met her when she was 101. She said to me, you know, even I'm tired of hearing my own stories. I thought, at the time, I thought that was a great line. Was, Even I'm tired of hearing my own stories. Well, I, we should all live to be 104, of course, but uh, I, I began being tired of my stories so long ago, I can't tell you, and I'm 66. But, however, the only Ray Charles, that's, that, that's his name, you know, the only Ray Charles is the most persistent man on the planet. Sweetest guy, too, in town. I mean, you, there is no one sweeter than Ray. But my goodness, <laughs> he, he can do it. He can make that phone call. And so, so my story has to begin with Arcangelo Raffaele Conti. Now, that was my paternal grandfather's name. He was an actor. Well, I was going to say he was an arrogant trumpet player, but that is both repetitive and redundant. <laughs> so let's just say that he played the trumpet. Right? He came from a little town between Rome and Naples called Ripi, and ended up in this country, and he, he was the soloist, the uh, cornet soloist, with the Banda di Napoli. Please, you've got to know they were dreadful. I mean, I don't have rec the first recollections of that musical stuff was at an Italian feast. You know how they just had the San Gennaro and stuff? Well, every little Italian community has that. Now, my father's band, my grandfather's band would be on this bandstand, and another band would be on this bandstand. Not Louis Belson, Buddy, Greco, uh, Buddy Rich, but they had these battling bands, and these old Italian guys would play arias from operas. If he did the Carnival of Venice, they did the Carnival of Venice. It had to be dreadful. I mean, I, I recollect him doing that, but you know, it just it couldn't have been great. Now, I, I, my father and grandfather, after supper, would take a piano vocal of an, of a, an Italian opera. One would take the girls' parts. The other would take all the boys' parts. And they'd sing through a, an opera, an entire opera. Now, this would happen regularly. So music wasn't a thing that I had to find. You know, a lot of people, I had friends that, that, you know, music got them one time. Now, the parents who did this, they did that, but then they fell in love. They found an instrument. They found a tune, something that drove them into music. And they were, let's say, like the convert. They got it. They got religion, and oh, my God. And they spent the rest of their life in music. In my case, it was like everywhere. It wasn't even like, what is that? It caused, now, my grandfather taught me solfeggio. Well, I don't have to explain that in this room, but you know, let the demographic get to another place, and they don't even know what solfeggio is. So my grandfather taught me that. My father was a, a pianist, 
and also a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design. He did sculpture, he did oil paintings by commission, so, and he was a pianist. He, he was a trained concert pianist. And that I could uh, actually say that he was a wonderful pianist. You could tell the difference because you can't play Liszt in those great works of the piano literature and just be impassive and say, well, you know, I guess it's okay. No, no, he was a wonderful player. And he played jazz, he, Art Tatum, Teddy Wilson, that's what, it, that's what his, he did, he did both. He did all of that, he played with Bobby Hackett. So that was the household which was not special at all. That's just what they did. It was such a pleasure going, he was, the, my father was a church organist. By the time I was eight years old, I was playing the children's mass. I had to do, my grandmother would sing. Now, it, it, of course it was all dreadful. And, that, and how hard could the music have been if it was just a children's mass, little tunes and all? But it began, at the, I mean, so long ago and, and with such history that it was just commonplace. Well, at a certain point, my father, who had gone through the war, unlike many of our friends, I had a lot of friends that say, oh, he was with the Miller Band. Oh, he did this and this. Band. My father put down musician, musician, musician in the Second World War. He went into the infantry. He did artillery, forward observing for four years. He didn't touch a piano. He got his ears blown out. He ended up coming out not in good shape. So he had a heart attack at some point. I must have been 12, 13. And then we were living in Rhode Island. And the doctor says, you should get to, to my father, you should get to uh, a place where you won't have to go through a winter which in his case, he knew someone in Miami, Florida, so we moved to my, the family moved to Miami, Florida. So I'm like 12 or 13 years old. Now my dad is uh, not well, but he's, he plays, he paints, he sculpts, he does what he does. He's, he's a real artist, and, but he's not gonna go out at night anymore. He's not gonna do those nighttime gigs. So I'm 14 and the phone rings and it's the last minute and they need a piano player to cover at some saloon on Miami Beach and my father, who had made a vow, not only, I mean, he's an ailing man, and he used to work at night, as, as, he, as a lot of people did, you know. And he says, no, but you know, uh, if you really get into a jam, call me back, uh, maybe I'll send, you, I'll send my son. He can cover it. Now, at 14 years old, right, and, then, and it was a trio, and there's a bass player and a drummer, and uh, um, if I was 14, I looked 10. Right? <laughs> I was 14, so I go into this place, and, and, and it became like an oddity that, oh, well, yeah, some kid playing the piano with these old guys. You know, they must have been in their 30s, you know. So I, now, here, now there's this trio. So the saloon guy got me a, a, a police ID for 21. Which, like, I looked 10, but I had a police ID that said 21, and every year they'd go 21 again, 21 again. I never aged because I kept playing in this saloon. And my father's condition was, well, look, if, if you're doing well at school, then you can, you can do it. That was nine to three. So at 14 years old, I began nine to three in a saloon with a trio. Now that didn't stop until I was 28 years old. Now, that was a career by itself. And I, did I, high school, yes, I was in high school. Uh, and, and my senior year, junior year going into my senior year, my father says, well, uh, what plans? Now, I've become totally encouraged. I've become that arrogant grandfather, almost a trumpet player, almost a trumpet player. 
what are you going to do next year? He said, well, we're moving into the Fountain Blue, and I think we got a week at the Eden Rock. It's just like disgusting. His is a guy who was like 15 years old. So he says, well, when you graduate, then you can move out and get your own apartment and get on with your life. Now, I didn't have a, not only did I not have a bad relationship with my father, he was my idol. He did all this stuff. I mean, he could play this, and then he could play that, and I couldn't play that. And then he made this sculpture that he's working on. So what, all he had to say was that. It was like a slap in the face. What do you mean? He says, well, you can get on with your life. If you think that the, you've arrived, you know, then, then you can move out. Your mother doesn't have to do your laundry. Uh, you know, you can... He says, I kind of thought you'd want a little bit more. So, the school teacher, now going into my senior year, she says, you know, you're a really good piano player. But at the end of the year, when you go up for scholarship, some little girl that is going to play you under the table and maybe you won't get that scholarship because piano is a very common instrument. She says, but if you played a double reed instrument, I could get you a scholarship like that. I said, really? So I rented a bassoon. And I rented a teacher, which which what, which what we do, right? There was a teacher at the University of Miami. So I worked on the bassoon for my senior in, in, in high school. And I, now seven, you gotta always remember nine to three. It's always nine to three. I was always going to work at night. But I was practicing the bassoon and practicing the bassoon and I could read anything, solfeggio, you know, Raffaele taught me solfeggio, that was never a problem. It just sounded like ducks should be coming when I played. <laughs> So I, I auditioned for three schools, and I got three scholarships. Scholarship to the University of Miami, University of Indiana, and Louisiana State University. Miami was like staying at home. Same place. Indiana. They said that it snowed in Indiana. I says, well, I remember snow. Rhode Island. Well, Louisiana. It doesn't snow in Louisiana. I'll go to Louisiana State University. So I did. On a bassoon scholarship. Now that means that when you get there, the band director who owns you, well, the school owns you, you know, now you're going to play the bassoon in the quartet over there, the, by the way they're doing this over there, and you're going to play the bassoon over there. And you're going to march in the marching band, but uh, we don't march bassoons, so pick an instrument. So I thought, tuba, piccolo, tuba, and I chose the piccolo. So now I taught myself enough to get through the little silly charts that they do in marching bands, right? Everybody on the melody, how could I? So I began uh, playing the piccolo there and then, then matriculated into, I see the people writing music now for them, the halftime shows. I go, well, huh, I got to do that. I mean, this, this is kind of silly. And I was a composition major, double, piano, and at silly schools you can do double. Real schools, you can't. So I'm a piano uh, uh, composition major, and I'm playing bassoon all my life. And in a nightclub from 9 to 3. Even The week I got there, I got a gig in, in Louisiana, across the river in an after-hours place. And I did that like for four years. So my, by my junior year, I met my first wife. She's my first wife because we live here in, in L.A., and, and, and we've been married 43 years. We were 19 years old, I met my first wife. She danced. 
and I played the piano for, I did everything. The piano for the, for the rehearsal for the girls, and I go, oh. You know, <laughs> piano players do that kind of thing. And oh, as a matter of fact, it was an ROTC school, so that was had military, right? Everyone had to be in the military, and they shaved your hair in those days. And I had amassed so many demerits that they weren't they withheld a degree. Except the band was away when the they needed a, a quick during my senior year, they needed to do a marching thing because some general was coming, and they needed a little tape of just marches on the piano so that people could march out into the parade ground. And, well, how much do you want? I want all my demerits erased. <laughs> so I did. I made them a little silly tape. I got my diploma and, and all my military things went away. Anyway, sitting with a bassoon in the middle of the orchestra and in the middle of everything, everywhere, for someone who just chose composition as a, what do you want to do, piano composition? Yeah, I'd like to write. Okay. Now you're sitting in the middle of the orchestra, and music actually grabs you at some point. Music was like breathing, was eating, and I played my piano, everyone. I just, But it wasn't that mystical moment that the convert had. I had that mystical moment sitting in the middle of an orchestra with a bassoon. So I could hear what the composer was doing. So it actually, you know what I mean, I got it. So all of a sudden, now I got it. No, I have to really get involved with this. This wasn't just... Hey, baby, satin doll, you know, and a lifetime of that. So I said, I got to continue with this. I, I uh, at this, in my mind, the school at the time was the Juilliard school that I had, people had talked about. So I auditioned for the Juilliard school because that's where I flew to New York, did what you did, uh, a week of uh, uh, auditions, and, and guys who were composition majors are coming in with boxes of music. I had the uh, <laughs> compulsory piano sonata that you had to write at a, at a university, and I felt, oh, gee whiz, these guys are... Now, was that all dreck? It, it was probably, you know, a, a lot of it was, was uh, all dreck. Anyway, I get into uh, Louisiana State, uh, to Juilliard, from Louisiana State upon graduation, and I go to Juilliard, and uh, what do you want to do? Well, I'm a piano... No, no, you're not. Pick one. Is it piano or is it composition? Because we require this. You can't do two here. We'll kick you out. Okay, I picked composition. My major teacher was Vincent Persichetti, uh, Roger Sessions, Elliot Carter, all the people that you thought were really heavy when you were in the music world and coming up. And you had to maintain a certain average to get Roger Sessions. This wasn't like everyone is getting Roger Sessions. No, you really struggled. And then you got to Roger Sessions, and there was four people in the class. And he talked about Schoenberg. Not the music. He talked about Schoenberg. You go, well, is he ever going to get to the music? So a sweet guy who never got to the music. I mean, he talked about, we were drawing straws to cut classes with Roger Sessions because some people just shouldn't teach. Now, what do you want? To, I said, I don't care about degrees. It doesn't mean anything to me. I'm staying here until I learn something, anything. So, in terms of curriculum, you had to do that. I said, all right, I want to write like this, like everybody for six months. So we began with Monteverdi. So for six months, I wrote like Monteverdi. Then we went up. So I, I was there for four years, and that was, I picked my own curricula. I, I rewrote Rigoletto. 
I had the libretto, right? And I wrote in the style of Verdi. Uh, of course, Rigoletto is the best. Mine is not the best. But I, I learned with how Verdi, you know, how do you, how do, you do Verdi? Uh, Meantime, I get married. Two years uh, we were uh, apart uh, while I was at Juilliard. Picked up another bachelor's to have to give you things while you're there. Then we got married, and I stayed another two years, and I have to give you things while you're there. And I'm, meanwhile, I'm working at, on Long Island. I'm working in Midtown Manhattan, 9 to 3, 9 to 3. All of it. Vittorio Giannini was one of the uh, teachers at the time. I had an 8 o'clock class with Vittorio Giannini, and I would struggle in. The Juilliard building was here. I took the apartment next door because when I get home at 4 or 5, and then for Giannini, who smoked a cigar at 8 o'clock in the morning, I would struggle in and go through classes until I could take a break and take a nap. Anyway, so I did that for four years. Hugo Weisgall was a teacher of mine who's an opera composer, excellent, and he offhandedly says to me, I'm going to be the composer in residence at the American Academy in Rome. Uh, and I'm the chairman of the, chairman of the uh, Prix de Rome committee. Why don't you come visit your roots and I'll give you the Prix de Rome. And I go, well, no, the Prix de Rome, begun by Charles, somebody in France. You, you remember that Hector Berlioz won the Prix de Rome, all that stuff? You just have to be older to realize that somebody's chairmanship. Okay, so I say to him, I said, well, look, I don't want the Prix de Rome. I'm not, what am I going to do with the Prix de Rome? Give it to Bruce, the other student with him, because if you had your choice, he says, look, he's an academic guy. He's going to go. He's got a Fulbright at Guggenheim. They're going to live on these scholarships forever. He's going to, he ultimately becomes a professor at Juilliard. In other words, ac academia is his life. My life is like Satendal. Well, in that sense that now I'm a little overqualified. In other words, now I got two bachelors and a master's, nine to three, nine to three. The bassoon music like is, I'm eating it like, but my life is, give him the Prix de Rome. But I will come to see you uh, in Rome. So my father dies at 49 years old in Miami. The same year that I'm supposed to go, and I told my mother, look, I, I, I come, I'll, I'll just come back to Miami. She says, no, you were planning to go to Rome. Go to Rome. Now, we had a, a car in New York, which is, you shouldn't have. So my wife asked me one day, where'd you park the car? Because in New York, oh, it's between that and that on that side of the road. Then you know where the car is. She says, well, where'd you park the car? I says, I sold the car. And I bought two one-way tickets to Rome. We're going to go live in Rome. Okay. Now we're on the uh, boat going over. Boat. 28 hand-carrying suitcases. And a stupid little dog that she had from our marriage, you know, when you're in the beginning. Uh, darling, sweetheart. Oh, yes, of course your dog can come. Up. Right. I'm not going to go into that in my house there's a dog now because my daughter went away and she wants to, I said, don't you even think about having a dog. Okay, but you can't say that when you're just married. So here's this stupid little dog, 28 suitcases, we're going to, to Italy on the Cristoforo Colombo, and she says to me, my wife says, would you ask the waiter for some butter, please? I said, waiter, butter. She says, no, ask him in Italian. I says, I don't speak Italian. He says, we're going to Italy. And you no, they never... No, I didn't know how to do that. But again, you can play the piano, so we're in steerage. 
we have a little place near the propellers. But there's this thing everywhere. Now, why would you pick third class to find the piano? You'd go to first class to look at the first class piano. So I did. And I played the piano every night. And for every rich person that wanted to hear something. So we went the whole time in first class, except for sleeping, we slept on top of the propellers. We arrive in Genoa and go to a place. Now the tears begin because the it's tough. This is like, you know, we're not hippies with a knapsack. We're just broke. And we're in Rome and no one speaks the language. And I go out on the Via Veneto to find a job looking for one of those. Because the Via Veneto is, that is there. We don't have an equivalent because we have a problem with, with style. In other words, I can't say Hollywood Boulevard because you go, oh, it was like that. No, it was not like that. It was like in Dolce Vita or some of those movies where you see the Via Veneto, the guys walking with their jackets off and parading. Well, there's little nightclubs and places. So I, I'm walking up Via Veneto and, and the guy, they look at your shoes, they know where you're from, they look at, they could figure it out. You want a woman? <gasps> this pimp is, and I come back down the street and he says, I got you a woman. I said, now look, I don't want a woman. I'm married. I, ha I need a job. I said, I play the piano. Oh, really? Come with me. So he takes me to the saloon where he knows the guy. So do a set, satin doll. And I just come off midtown Manhattan. I mean, I'm pretty good, you know. I mean, I know what I'm doing here. The guy goes, 3,000 lira. I look in the book, I go, that's $5. I'm making 50 bucks a night in, at, you know, at Jilly's in, in New York. I, well, thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you very much. We go someplace else. I do, sat and down, I'm really doing another set. The guy goes. So I go back to the other guy, and I take the 3,000 lira a night job, $5 a night, and I stay there for two years. Now, I, I mean, I'm in the Via Veneto, I'm Ramsey Lewis. Well, it's the 60s, it's the 60s, right? If London was swinging, we were like right behind them in terms of that international jet setting, whatever, and I'm Rams, I have a trio, and I'm the hottest thing in town. Babies are born. Both of my daughters were born in uh, Rome. And there was an author named Morris West. There were two authors in Rome at the time. Gore Vidal lived there and Morris West. Shoes of the Fisherman, Devil's Advocate, stuff like that. He was an Australian uh, author. And, and I had become, you know, that little small town thing when you're the only American jazz piano player at the hottest little discotheque in town. So I was like, known. This is silly. but So he contacts me, Morris West. He has a son who's incorrigible, just a kid who's been thrown out of every school in the world. And he thought that with my credentials, meaning I'm overeducated in music, to be a guy that's still in a saloon, nine to three. As a matter of fact, the first gig that I had in uh, uh, Rome was from 12 to 6. It began at midnight to six in the morning. And yes, it was the time when Clint Eastwood would come in because he was shooting that stuff and sit at the piano bar that many years ago, right? So now it's still nine to three. I'm playing the piano. Now he says, I'll teach my kid. 
lessons. You know, who doesn't do that? Teach them piano, music lessons. Then get them ready for the A levels. The English have the equivalency of a high school, just A levels. Oh, my wife can teach him this, and I'll teach him that. So we go on teaching the kid. I mean, I'm working, I'm working. Children are being born. I have just those two daughters. So he, Morris, calls for me to, to, to have a meeting, and he's living at this villa next to Gina Lola Brigida. He sends his driver for me with white gloves, the kind of money that was just like amazing. We're sitting by the pool, and he says, but I know you teach my son, and I know that you play at that saloon, but what do you do? And I, I'm a composer. Oh, you mean you write music? I says, yes. He says, oh, you write every day. He says, I'm, he says, I'm a writer. I write every day. I get up at 7. I write from 8 to 12.30. I have lunch. Then I go back to writing again. Do you write every day? No, 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 I, I don't. I get up at noon. Well, nine to three. Uh, oh, oh, you're not really a composer. Yes, I am. Yes, I have two bachelors and a master's. I'm, I'm accredited. He says, no, no, no. You're, excuse me, he says, but I think you're living a lie. He says, what? He says, I'm a writer. I write every day. That's what I do. And then my grandfather comes out. I says, yes, but you're rich. And you're famous. And you've got, he says, no, no. Before I was rich and famous, I was a writer. And I wrote every day. You don't write every day. You don't even write once a week. You don't write once a month. I'm waiting for a picture. No, you're just living a lie. Now, you can't imagine. I, I think you could imagine. I'm actually shaking. Inside, I'm kind of sweating. I'm just, my clothes are sticking to me. He says, I'm going to make you a deal. How much do you make in that place? It was $500 a month. <coughs> month. He says, here. He takes out a checkbook. He says, I'm going to give you $500 a month to stop playing in that saloon. You just teach my kid. Can you do that? Now, from 14 to 28, I mean, can I do that? Well, psychologically, you know, could I? I mean, I don't know that. But he, he says, now, look, here's, here's the check. You, you, I just give you this once a month, and then uh, uh, you take the money, and, and you can stay in that club, and you'll be making $1,000 a month. He says, but you can never let it be said that you didn't have a chance to become a composer. Oh! oh I, just recounting it takes me back to that. I'm sitting by the pool, shaking like a leaf. I took his money because you take money. <laughs> I come home. I, I try to describe what happened to my wife. I, I, I can't describe it. I can't, I'm beside myself. I've been challenged. Like my father challenged me, what are you going to do in the fall? This is the next, this guy did this. So I go, I go in that night. Now this place, I mean, I'm talking people of whatever. If you think saloons are hot, you know, this was the hottest. Leontine Price was opera singer extraordinaire who was online to get in and, and she sends word. And it's Leontine Price. Kie? Who's that? Leontine Price. I says, Leontine Price, let her in, let her in. So I tell the drummer and the bass player, I says, I'm quitting tonight. What? 
I said, I quit. It's my last night. I go up to the owner at the end of the night. I said, it's my last night. He triples my pay. He begins panicking. Panicking. He doesn't know what panic was to get to this point that I actually would never step into a nightclub. <laughs> Almost. You know, I get funny walking into the... Anyway, that was it. I said, I quit. So now I'm going to be a writer. Now I'm going to write. And then I'm going to ghost write. Because in Italy, or young people, I mean, there are no MIDI extractors anywhere in those days. You just ghost wrote for other composers. Because they knew if you put out your shingle, you're going to write. And you got like something like 5,000 lira a minute. There were no sketches. There's no tape to extract. You just give me two minutes of this and three, five minutes of that. So I began doing that until they, I realized that they were making both credits and money. There's a film that came to Hollywood, and the score was lauded as something. I'm going, wait a minute. So then my grandfather and me just perks up. I, I'm not doing this anymore. Can't do that. So they make albums. They make records in Milan. So I went to Milan, Italy, to to do. Uh, um, record albums, because you could get credit. And a young guy needed credit more than he need, needed money. And between quitting that and going to Milan, I, I directed the Italian version of Hair. Please. <laughs> so, I, so I go to Milan, and, I, and we're doing albums. Now, this is good. You can say uh, arrangement by. Arrangement by, and sometimes music by, if you do. And I, I have a, I'm living at the, uh, the Grand Hotel, in, in Milan, which is right next door to La Scala, the opera house. Now, after a year of living, going back and forth, my wife would not come, so I would go five days a week to Milan and two days on the weekend back home. So I had a, a little apartment in uh, uh, the Grand Hotel. So this one Monday morning, I come back into the, uh, uh, the Grand, and uh, he said, oh, maestro, uh, we had to let your room out. There's a convention here, but we have another place for you. Now, I had been doing my arrangements at night in the ballroom because in a hotel, I mean, that's what it's, there's the things, animals running around. Like if you turn the lights on in this place, it would be scary. <laughs> Forgive me. I'm sorry. I just lived in these places. So uh, I'm in the, you know, during the, the winter in Milan doing my charts for the next morning and stuff like this. So this guy takes my, my little bag and he says, well, Maestro, we're going to La Sala Verde over here. Now, you know what that was, the green room. And I go, what do you mean La Sala Verde? He gets down the car, he opens up these doors, and I see this little piano in this room. Little doilies on it and stuff like that. I go, what? Are you telling me for a year I've been down in the ballroom with the rats and stuff like that, and, and you had a piano in this hotel? In a room? He says, maestro, this is the room where Giuseppe Verdi died. Buonanotte. So I remember reading how when Verdi, Verdi died forever. He like the Spanish guy. He just died. And, and they, while he was dying, people would be quiet, passing his room. Anyway, who could sleep? Who could write a chart? Who could do anything? He was sleeping in Verdi's room. So during all this period of, of doing records and things, someone says, you want to go to the, while I'm at the Venice uh, uh, Festival, uh, someone says, would you like to be with these Americans that are coming to shoot a movie and you'll take care of the music for them? The municipal band of uh, uh, Venice and the street musicians and you'll be the, the music guy. Sure, money. Somebody's hand, yeah, I'll do it. 
So it's Paul Mazursky. He's coming over with Bloom and Love, Susan Ansbach, George Siegel movie, American movie. Shoot a month in Piazza San Marco. Italians are over here, the Americans over here. Paul Mazursky would come over with his translator to tell the people, the Italians, what we're going to do this day, the scenes, what he wanted, the municipal band and the, and the little street musicians I had to deal with. So after two weeks, of, Paul would come over and, and, and with his translator, both after breakfast and after lunch. He comes this, after lunch, he comes alone. And he's looking for me. And he says, Bill, Bill. He says Bill because when, he's, when I was introduced, the Italian said, this is Bill Conti. So Paul says, Bill, at two o'clock, I need the musicians. And he says, do you understand? I shook my head. It's perfectly clear to me what he said. At two o'clock, the musicians have to do scene 134. But do you understand? I says, uh, yes. <gasps> He says, do you speak English? I said, uh, yes. He still did get it. He says, where did you learn how to speak English? I says, Providence, Rhode Island. I kind of grew up there. Well, <laughs> he couldn't believe that he was speaking to me through an interpreter for two weeks. So he became, we kind of, you know, he fell on the floor, was laughing. He says, why didn't you tell me? All of that. Anyway, time goes on. The children are now three, three, two or three years old. Grandparents haven't seen them. Why don't you go to uh, Los Angeles? No, why don't you go to Louisiana to show the grandparents, the children, okay, we come. My wife says, because I'm there with my in-laws, she says, why don't you go to Los Angeles to see that Paul Mazursky that you worked with in Venice? So this is like 73. So she stays in Louisiana with the children, and I come out to L.A. to see Paul Mazursky. Hi, remember me? That kind of thing, right? And there was a still photographer that I became friendly with. I, I was just a guy, a unit guy that came to shoot on the movie. I'm sleeping on his couch. And Paul, uh, I, we see Paul every once in a while. And then um, boat tickets are good for a year. You, come, you, you don't have to cash them in for you. After a year, they expire. So we came in January, and we're supposed to go back in January again. Now, Shelby's away in Louisiana. I'm out here. And on New Year's Eve, Paul says, I'd like you to do Harry and Tonto, his movie, his next movie. I go, oh, cool. Shelby was staying, cash in the tickets. Then you come out here, and, and life is going to be good. So I got $4,500 to do Harry and Tonto which the family of four does not work, even in 73. So my wife gets a job, and she is uh, uh, working at a, a radio station, television secretary type stuff. And I'm going from door to door looking for work. The editor of Harry and Tonto goes to work with a director at 20th Century Fox to do a movie called W.W. and the Dixie Dance Kings, starring Burt Reynolds. No movie that you ever heard. But it's 20th. And she says, he says, why don't you come and meet the director? Ooh, I come and I meet the director. The director is John Avelson, and, he's, and, I, and I do the music, meaning I made tapes of uh, the score, the entire score. Avelson loved it. The cutter guy from the, the Mazursky movie, I was in. They used somebody else. 
the studio picks someone else. Fine. Uh, life goes on. They, that cutter, the original cutter from Harry and Tonto, the WW, now with Harry, uh, um, John Avelson, go to do the little Rocky movie. David Shire turns it down. His wife, Talia, is the lead. I guess I would tell other stories, but I won't. On a one-on-one, -on -one I would, but not like this. <laughs> but in fact, David turns it down, it, and someone else turns it down, and they, those two guys, remember the guy that gave it away on, on uh, the W picture. Why don't we call him? And I was used to saying yes but to everything, anything. And therefore, I came in, and then in three weeks, uh, one, at one three-hour session at TTG, we did the Rocky score, and my wife, who was the secretary, says, is there anybody in the office that can sing? Yeah, come over on your lunch break. Going to fly. Now, so my wife is singing on that original thing. And again, in three hours, it's all over. I go away to, I take a movie in Germany. I go away for a month, and she says, she who would not see a fight movie, that little fight movie you did, it seems to, it has come out. There's some little action. And uh, uh, I think it's doing well. I said, oh, good. Well, I'll be home in a month because you don't travel with your MIDI extractor and your orchestrator. And, uh, no, I'm doing everything in a hotel room in Munich for the 90-piece orchestra. You know, I mean, come on. You can't fake that. And, you know, the scores have to go from the beginning to the end. Then you turn the page two hours later. Ah, oh, my God, where's my MIDI extractor? <laughs> So, so I come home, and yes, Rocky is indeed a hit. And, and of course, the producers, when they came in to see it, they, they said, um, well, they saw the 16-track recorder and said, why aren't you going direct to 35 Mag? I said, well, there might be a record. And, oh, and they left. Nobody saw, even saw the session. And the director says, well, where's the projection? I said, no, it costs too much. There's no projection on this session. It's all on the stopwatch. I said, don't you know the movie? So we did the movie. I did have the 16-track tape. Maynard Ferguson did, had a hit by the time I came back. I go, does anybody want the original to this silly thing? And uh, the guy at Warner Brothers that I forget said, yeah, I want it. So I had 16 tracks that we mixed, and I uh, shamed uh, uh, Mike Stewart, the publisher, to giving me what I should have had in terms of royalties, because it, it wasn't, I forget what normal is, but I had like one and a half percent. I should have had three. I don't know what the details were, but he did. He stepped out. I says, come on. So I got a little taste of, a, a, a little taste of meaning the normal things that everybody gets in their contract. Now, after Rocky, nothing counts, because then your life changes. Uh, it, nothing counts. You need a hit. You can't buy a hit. But if you have a hit, then your phone rings, and it's Bill Friedkin, and he's directing the Academy Award show, and he wants the guy that just did that Rocky movie. Well, it could have been uh, Isaac Hayes. For You know what I mean? That little tune, it could have been Isaac Hayes. So I have a meeting with um, Bill Friedkin at Universal, and, he, and Mr. Friedkin will see you now. There's two secretaries sitting outside. Who needs two secretaries? And this big door's open, and he's at the way down at the end of the room, and he has a little cassette recorder, and he puts on a little silly tune of mine, and he's clapping. So he claps for three minutes, I'm going. <laughs> I mean, it's a blessing that you have a hit, but come on. 
I mean, so, so he says, can you do the Academy Award show? And then my grandfather speaks and says, of course I can do the Academy Award show. He says, then you're my music director. Meeting was over. I left. That was it, right? So now, just you know, two simple things, two simple things. And I'm going to do this even though you know everybody in this room knows exactly what it is to conduct the Academy Award show, some more than others. Yeah. But even though you know that, in 1977, when Mr. Friedkin had a panic attack and asked me to do that, I talked with Henry Mancini. I talked with Elmer Bernstein. They had done that show. How hard can it be, right? Well, let's imagine that there's a script that has to be read. It's a script. There's music to be read. Well, between 110 and 115 starts. It's a lot of music to be read. This is the visual stuff. Now, there's monitors. There's a monitor here. There's a monitor here. This is the real one, and this is seven seconds later. Okay, well, I mean, it's what it is. Now, let's, let's talk audio. Headphones. Fine, fine. This ear has one thing. This ear has something else. Now, you have a line amplifier. You want to change? You want to actually hear Celine Dion? Well, you've got to turn down the raging director who's screaming in your ear. You've got to do that with this hand, right? Turn it up. Turn it down. Uh, audio. So you have a microphone. You say, well, you know, why? Well, the director says it's a live show. We can't find Richard Pryor. He's incoherent. We're going to do something else now. Well, you need, he, now you have to talk back to him because, you know, he's, you've got, you know, at, at least when I do the show, there's 60 musicians and 16 singers. They all have one little earphone to hear me. Not the show. I have to speak to them, but my hands are doing audio, script, music. This one is only good for downbeats and cutoffs. We don't care about anything else, right? Downbeats and cutoffs. So you have a foot pedal to activate your microphone to talk to the director. Okay, we're going to do that. Now you got to tell the musicians. Well, they have another foot pedal, right? They're just not hearing everything. So there's a second foot pedal. We're going to do number 85 now. And they, now they know they're doing 85. Now, God forbid, oh, my monitor went out. The third part, foot pedal is for the, the engineering. Uh, I just lost the monitor here. Could someone help me out? So in 77, I've done it 19 times, so you kind of know that I know how to do that. But not in 77. Not the very first time you did it. And the first time you did it, you have a headache that, forget about Excedrin, you want morphine. Your head is exploding like this because you don't want to miss a cue. So you turn up the audio. And the audio you can't hear the orchestra. The orchestra has no meaning at all. I have the brass sitting right here. Well, I can hear the pulsing of something. I don't want to miss a downbeat. I mean, I can't. And the winner is five different pieces of music. It's not hard. It just contributes more to the energy of, oh my God, oh my God. And then you miss the, then, then God forbid they show two people up there and, and the two people say thank you, but there's the third one. And you cut them off and you go, oh. In the middle of, of all of this, while the show was going down, Paul Schur, who was my concert manager, grabs my leg, which you shouldn't do anyway. <laughs> I freak out. I uncover a thing. He says, some of us smell smoke. Smoke? I hit the foot pedal to Marty Pacetta, who's the director, who's a screaming, raging man. I said, this is Bill in the pit. Look, so many musicians smell smoke. He said, holy Jesus. Now, I'm my grandfather's son. I'm cursing back. Look, we're going to die for this stupid show. Seventy people are going to walk up to Santa Ryle right now. No, Bill, don't. So the firemen come. 
on their hands and knees, crawling to the orchestra. Now, now, Ian, it's not that tragic. You know it's not that tragic. But in 77, when no one knows who you are, your little silly tune isn't any better than Isaac Hayes' tune of Shaft the year before. You think you're being identified with the wrong... In other words, oh, baby, you know, no, no, I really want to write music here. I, I know the tune, you like the tune. I want a movie. And this is where David Shire gets the revenge. Robert Stigwood, Bill, I want you to do Saturday Night Fever along with John Allison. It's two cuts on the album, three cuts on the album, something like that. No, I'm an artist. No, I didn't say that. But Avelson leaves, right, because he wants total control of everything. And he says, well, Bill, here, talk to the Bee Gees. They're in France. We just did the music. The music's just show up. Here's three cuts on the album. No, I'm looking. I, I'm an artist. I... I need more than that. And my wife says, three cuts on the album, it's about $2 million. So David took the job, David Shire, and he had three cuts on the album. I don't know what he made, but I wish I had made it. <laughs> so I've been nominated, what, three times. I never sat in the uh, uh, audience except once. And it's really tough when, you, when, you, when you're doing it. And th that eye contact, you know, is, is important at the beginning, at the end. Right? You know that. But when they say, and the winner is, you know, and you, everybody's looking like this. And when you see your name there, he goes, oh, well, there's like, gonna fight. oh, for your eyes only. You go, oh, hey. You look at the musicians, and you go, oh, I, I think you're going to win. I think you're gonna... Then you lose, and the musicians look down. <laughs> director goes, Bill, music. I said, I can't. Nobody's looking at me. They feel so badly that I lost. So the only time I sat in the audience, I was nominated for the right stuff, and my wife, all around the month before, going, oh, I have a feeling, you know, that woman stuff. I have a feeling. I said, please forget your feeling. We've been there before. We Losing is okay, too. Life is good. We, Come on. No, I have a feeling. Okay. You know, they seat you all in the same thing. So I'm sitting next to Johnny Williams. Um, I forget all the guys that year that were never. It's, you know, the regular, us people, nice people. Johnny... Talking, oh, it would be, and this is how the throwaway lines go. Oh, I wish I was working here rather than sitting here. It's just tough. All the BS that you do, even with your friends, right? Oh, this is terrible. I can't stand this. I'd rather be working on the show. Until that moment of truth when they're going to do your category and your name and you hate him and you're staring straight ahead. He's staring straight ahead because you want to win. He wants to win. So they go, and the winner is, and it was me. My wife goes, So I hand her my program. I says, uh, I got to go get this thing. I'll be right back. So give her a little peck, you know. I come back. I, what are you, crazy? For a month, you're going berserk? I win an Academy Award and you go like that? He says, no, it dawned on me when you won that you were going to leave, leave me here sitting with all the losers. I felt so badly for them. Oh! <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, 
and our annual Golden Score Awards Banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.